What's going on, What If Projectors? I don't know. That was, <laughs> that was random. Welcome back. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, my name is Glenn, and uh, this is episode 285 of the show. And uh, today we have a brand new guest on, Dr. Kyle Smith. Uh, Kyle wrote a book called Cult of the Dead, A Brief History of Christianity. And I learned about Kyle on the Bart Ehrman's blog, I think maybe like a year, over a year ago now. He wrote a series of uh, posts uh, about the book. It was maybe like three or four. And the posts intrigued me. And then I saw the book. And I told Kyle this, that I totally judged the book by the cover because the cover's like right up my alley. It's a, it's a light beige cover with a bright pinkish skullish design. And it says Cult of the Dead in dark dark black writing and I was like oh man I love this and so I of course got the book and I read it and it's fantastic uh this is a book about martyrs and it's a book about how uh the elevation I guess you could say of martyrdom in Christian history has shaped Christianity and it's such a fascinating topic as Kyla brings out like so many things that I I never considered before in the history uh, of the Christian faith. And he talks, it's story after story about different martyrs and, you know, what people believed about martyrs and the bones of martyrs and all these different kinds of things. And he traces it like all the way back and how it really, you know, began, how the, the elevation of martyrdom began with, you know, the desire to follow in the footsteps of, of Jesus and how it was seen as a good thing to be put to death because of your faith in Christ. And so really interesting stuff in this book and this conversation. And uh, he's actually, we're, we're working on him coming back on the show uh, in the fall to talk to us about the Day of the Dead. We talk about the Coco, the movie Coco uh, in the episode. And, you know, that movie, the Pixar movie revolves around the holiday, uh, the Day of the Dead. And so he he's he talks a little bit about it in this episode, but when we were done, I was like, oh man, I've got so many more questions about that. And so can we do an episode about that? He said, yeah, for sure. So uh, he's going to be back on in the fall to talk more about those things. But this is such a good episode, such a good book. I'll put his link uh, and the link to the book in the show notes. Do yourself a favor and go pick it up. If you're a nerd and you like to read nerdy stuff, this is up your alley, but... Uh, like I told him as well, I think I, I told him this before we recorded, that I love the book because it's a big topic. Uh, it's a scholarly work, but it's not written in a way that like is way over the head of the average reader. Like he has personal stories in there, and I almost felt like I was sitting with him like in a coffee shop, and he was sharing, he was like explaining this topic to me in very accessible terms. And so... Do yourself a favor, pick up the book. You will not be sorry. Uh, also, in the show notes, links to my books, Rethinking Everything, Emerging from the Rubble, and also link to Patreon if you want to support the show financially, anywhere from $3 a month up to $100 a month. Uh, any tier in between, all tiers get the same reward. Entrance to a Discord chat community where we chat throughout the course of the week, course of the month, and share questions, thoughts, ideas, and the happenings of our life, just a place to know that you have friends and you're not alone uh, on the journey that can often feel very lonely <laughs> when you're deconstructing and rethinking your 
your faith. And so anyway, episode 285 with Dr. Kyle Smith. Let's talk about the cult of the dead. Enjoy. Yeah. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Today we're sitting down with a brand new friend. His name is Kyle Smith. He has written an amazing book called Cult of the Dead, A Brief History of Christianity. And so Kyle, uh, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to finally get some time with you. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on, Glenn. I, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. Definitely. So before we dip our toes uh, into this into this work, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, especially for people who are new to you and to your work? Uh, who is Kyle Smith? What do we need to know? Well, I'm a Libra. Uh, no. I'm an Aquarius. Uh, there we go. Um, I'm a professor at the University of Toronto. Um, I've been here for about 13 years. Um, my training background, academic background, is all in early Christianity. Uh Christianity in, in late antiquity. A lot of a lot of the stuff I did in, in the past focused on the fourth century. So this is the era of Constantine. Mm -hmm. uh, and then specifically, I, I've always been very interested in Christianity, sort of in the Roman Persian borderlands, basically what's now Turkey, Syria, mm -hmm. Iraq, um, and the and the Christians of Persia as well. Um, so that area, uh, the main literary language of Christians there was uh, the, the Christian dialect of Aramaic called Syriac, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of fundamental texts written in that in that language. Um, but I teach, you know, at the undergrad and graduate level, um, a lot more broadly, main, especially at the undergrad level, I teach courses on, on monks and asceticism mm -hmm. and, the, you know, the history of Christian monasticism, but, uh, but also martyrs and the saints. Um, and then my, the, the chair of my department wanted me to do some more, uh, uh, I suppose, courses that might be more interesting to everybody. And uh, <laughs> he said, how about a course on Christian holidays? And I said, well, that would that would be huge. Mm. And he said, well, what about just one? What about Christmas? And I said, oh, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And um, so that that sort of turned into a, a side project, which is now led into the, the book that I'm currently working on, mm. which is called uh, The Many Lives of St. Nick, uh, about St. Nicholas. Interesting. Um, yeah, but my cocktail party answer is, you know, how did you get into this? You know, it's always uh, I, one word, you know, Yoda. <laughs> uh kind of always been interested in the 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 people in the waste places or out in the desert who yeah. know things that everybody else doesn't know right yeah. yeah so i mean even when i was a, when i was growing up um i grew up in in central kentucky sort of uh bourbon and horse country mm. um and i grew up kind of quasi catholic and I, what i mean by that is that you know I didn't go to Catholic school, but my my mom, who was raised Catholic, mm -hmm. um, made us go to CCD on Sundays because we didn't go to Catholic school. My dad, you know, had no interest in any of this. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I was in high school, uh, the the teacher of the class, sort of much to the chagrin of a lot of the parents, decided to do more of a, a comparative religions approach. Mm -hmm. 
And so he took us out to this Zen monastery out in the Daniel Boone Forest in the, the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains and uh, called Furnace Mountain, still there, still functional. Mm. And that really kind of caught my interest um, uh, academically. And, and even once I got my driver's license, I would actually you know, go out there on the weekends. It's sort of a, mm. a weird thing for a 16-year-old <laughs> to do, right? Um, but th- then when I w- became an undergrad uh, I studied at Notre Dame, I studied philosophy. And especially when you're at a school like that, there's not, and you're doing historical philosophy, there's not a huge mm. leap from the Stoics to all of the people in early Christianity who are trained on Greek philosophy yeah. and reading people like the Stoics, right? Mm. Um I ended up then continuing on doing a master's degree at Notre Dame. And then uh, in between the master's degree and my PhD down in your neck of the woods at Duke, um, I I was a Fulbright fellow in in Jerusalem for a year and spent uh, most of the time learning Armenian, classical Armenian and and Syriac, but then also just hiking out to to the Byzantine era monasteries in the Judean desert. I mean, this was, this was 20 years ago. It's yeah. not exactly the time to do that now, but um, you'd always have to go on Saturdays because uh, you would traverse an Israeli uh, artillery range, but you knew that they weren't there on Saturdays. Wow. <laughs> um, but uh, I got to know um, uh, uh, an archeologist at the Hebrew university um, and he uh, he sort of showed me the route. So you know you can walk from from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea in a day, no problem. And then mm. you know take the take the bus home. I think we maybe some. Uh, I love the story about Mark Twain. He's got you know he grew up of course on the on the Mississippi River, and he's seeing you know these spirituals roll on Jordan, yeah. and then he actually gets to the Holy Land and you know sees the Jordan. It's like this is this is a creek where I'm from, <laughs> right? right? Yeah, so the, the the land is compressed in ways that mm. you know I think if you're you're familiar with the Bible and have this sort of imagination of biblical history. It's this yeah. expansive land, but then you get there and it, everything's right on top of one another. But um, uh, that, as my father used to say, was a long walk for a ham sandwich. But um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it seems like kind of a well-scripted novel, like when you're telling it in retrospect, like, right. oh, of course, this is how I ended up, uh, you know, in this professorial position. But it's kind of, you know, at, at the time, it's just pinging from one thing to the next. Yeah. Would you say that that moment, like when, when you talk about comparative religion, like, would you say that that yeah. moment in your life as like, a, I think you said you were 16, was that like a, was that, do you think that was like looking back, like a defining moment that kind of opened up a well to bring you where you are today? Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there, there already kind of was that history in Kentucky um, with Thomas Merton, who came sure. from from New York and yeah. you know then lived at, at Gethsemane uh out in, in western Kentucky south of Louisville mm-hmm. um the other direction but he too right was uh, very much interested in corresponding with other monks not just Christian monks but uh, yeah. uh the, the Dalai Lama uh and others and um I think kind of being aware of the uh or at least more aware you know in my teenage years of the breadth of interest in ultimate reality from so many different perspectives was something that even then, you know, years ago, uh, I knew was something that I, if I had the opportunity, wanted to spend my life pursuing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, it, I think, though, my problem, put the problem in scare quotes, mm-hmm. um, is that it was at the same time, 
personal and introspective, but it was always more sort of academic. Mm. Um, you know, I was always more interested in learning about Zen Buddhism, for example, rather than actually practicing it. Sure, um, sure. Just practicing it's too hard. You got to get up too early. You gotta, <laughs> it's too you many know, your things. legs fall asleep, right? right. <laughs> That's too painful. Right. So it's you know the theory is much easier be, to grasp. <laughs> theory much easier to grasp. Yeah, but but that was certainly was a formative formative experience for me. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. So uh, your book, let's start with the title of the book, uh, Cult, yeah. Cult of the Dead, because when I think of cult, I think of David Koresh, right? I mm-hmm. think of that show Criminal Minds, you know, where they're chasing down heinous criminals who sometimes are cult leaders committing these horrendous acts in God's name. But that's not at all what this book is about. So talk to us a little bit about the the title of the book, the word cult. Uh, what can people expect if they were to pick up this book? What's it about? Who's it for? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you're right. Um, I mean, it is a negative term, the way that that we use it now. It summons up this idea of a sect and some sort of strange yeah. and sinister beliefs and practices. Mm-hmm. Um, so am I using the word in that way? Uh, not exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a, a straightforward, um, simply descriptive way of understanding cult, um, which is used among scholars all the time to refer to the cult of the saints. This is nothing that new that I've coined. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a common neutral term. Um, but it, it's it's used as a means of referring simply to the ritual practices of care and devotion that mm-hmm. Christians had for the saints and martyrs or mm-hmm. for centuries, still mm-hmm. do. Um, so etymologically, um, I mean, it means care. Think of uh, the word agriculture, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, care for the fields or to, uh, to to cultivate a plant or to cultivate a child's love of music is to care for it, to, mm-hmm. to nurture it. Um, so to say that Christianity is a cult of the dead isn't to malign it, um, but to emphasize the extent to which the care for the saints fundamentally shaped the culture of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but on the other hand, I mean, I think to an audience living, you know, now in in twenty twenty four, even Christians, right, many many varieties of Christians probably would see. Uh, the ritual practices involving the saints and martyrs, at least in antiquity and in the Middle Ages, um, as pretty strange and sinister. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me give you an example uh, of, of what I mean. Have you ever been to um, ever been to Canterbury Cathedral in England? No, nope. Yeah, so um, I mean, the, the cathedral was it's amazing. You know, medieval cathedral, the seat mm-hmm. now of the uh, the Anglican Church, Church of England, um, but. 850 years ago, uh, on actually, we know ex- the exact date, it was December 29th, 1170. Mm-hmm. It was a Tuesday after mm-hmm. Christmas. Um, Thomas Beckett was the bishop at the time and was killed in his own cathedral, in Canterbury Cathedral, having to do with a dispute with the king, with Henry II. Mm-hmm. Um, and a cult dedicated to Thomas the Martyr, to, to Thomas Beckett, uh, developed in the late 12th century, literally overnight, um, the very same evening that he was killed. So the story goes, uh, a townsman got a uh, a cloth that had been soaked in the the bishop's blood. He took it home, he rinsed it out as best he could. And this is the gross part. He gives the washing water to his wife to drink. And according to him, she's immediately cured of her paralysis, Mm -hmm. right? And there is story after story preserved 
in in texts, but also in stained glass that you can still see mm. today. If you go to, to Canterbury Cathedral and look up at the, the so-called miracle windows um, that give example after example of how people were miraculously cured by drinking Canterbury water, right? This mm. water mixed with, with Beckett's blood. Um, so one of the examples that I bring up in my book, and this is, I think, uh, just these two beautiful uh, adjacent roundels, these little stained glass circles mm-hmm. um, that tell the story of, in just two images, of Mad Henry of Fordwich, which is just a, a village that was about an hour's walk away from Canterbury. So in the first one, Mad Henry is being led into the church, and you can see he's being led to the sarcophagus where, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Beckett's bones are. And he's got two people, he's, he's got his hands bound behind his back with rope. He's got two caretakers on either side of him who are striking him with clubs. Like, and it even says, the Latin text, it says he arrives out of his mind, right? Mm-hmm. And then he, he is bound to Beckett's tomb, tied up to mm-hmm. Beckett's tomb overnight with the hope, you know, the, the term is incubation, right? <laughs> with, with the hope that, you know, by incubating overnight next to this martyr's tomb, that the saint is going to come to him and cure him of his mania. And then the image right next to it, this second roundel sort of confirms exactly that. It shows him, you know, hands untied. His cape is now, instead of billowing in front of him, it's, you know, draped properly behind his back. And he's mm-hmm. praying at the tomb as the, you know, kind of gobsmacked caretakers from the day before are shocked at his transformation, right? Um, so, I mean, that's arguably pretty strange and sinister in terms yeah. of, uh, of, a, of a cultic practice, right? That, that meaning the that many people who would identify as Christian today see as very odd. Um, and I think that that is really one of uh, the main points that I wanted to get across with this book um, is that we are inured to sort of thinking about that kind of version of Christianity because we're so used to whatever the 21st century version uh, of it is, is part of the air that we breathe. Um, and that's, you know, to get back to the, the brief history of Christianity part of the title is, is really what I'm trying to do with this book, to, to give a brief and, and hopefully entertaining history of the culture, uh, the stories, the art, the architecture, the liturgies, um, that is the care for the saints, the Christian care for the saints, which fundamentally means uh, that the cult and culture of Christianity that is built around the martyrs and martyrdom. Hmm. Um, so that, that's, that's kind of what the book is. Yeah, I feel I feel like that's so that's so intriguing. Like, what would you say, given like that this, like you said, this particular part of the history of Christianity is, you know, it's it's on the back burner, so to speak, in our modern understanding of the faith. Like what yeah. what if you could name like an aspect of Christianity that's been lost or maybe that hasn't been we wouldn't recognize in our modern culture as a result of not having the contents of this book, you know, right mm-hmm. in front of us, like what, what would be like an example of maybe how the faith would have looked different back then than it does today? If you had to name one thing off the top of your head. Um, well, I mean, I think, you know, drinking, uh, drinking water mixed with uh, a martyr's blood or, you know, little bits and pieces of the blood uh, might be one thing, but, but certainly the, the cult of relic veneration is, though it still exists, yeah. most definitely, yeah, yeah. Um, is something that I think is very odd to mm-hmm. 
many, you know, let's just say many North Americans, um, even Catholic and Orthodox North American Christians uh, who understand that history, yeah. right? Um, yeah. You know, the idea there uh, that there is some sort of, that the, that, that bone is a, is a portal to the divine or that the saint can sort of be bilocated, right? Like on, on earth and in heaven at the same time through the their physical remains is something that I think many today would find pretty strange. Yeah. 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 And might justify then the the uh the more commonly understood explanation of the word cult in the title. All right. So if if cult if cult's referring to, you know, like care, caring for the dead, because mm-hmm. I had never thought of that before, because again, in my mind, cult means this it's a strictly negative thing. And so mm-hmm. as I was reading the book and as I was preparing for this this conversation. I was thinking back, you know, my, my father passed away in, in March and you know that because yeah. we've been uh, rescheduling this <laughs> for the whole year and we finally were able to make it happen. But after he passed away, my, my daughter, who is six, she started asking like a lot of questions about yeah. life and death and, you know, what happened, all these different things. And, you know, I'm in this place now where like I used to back in my evangelical days, I had all the answers, you know, like I was very mm-hmm. straightforward but nowadays i'm like i really have no idea you know what happens and one of her favorite movies is coco you know the pixar movie mm-hmm. um, yeah about the day of the dead and so she wanted to celebrate that this past year and uh, we set up a little altar and uh she put a picture of grandpa on there and he liked his coffee so she drew him a picture of coffee we just kind of put different trinkets on there that he really he liked and so your your book is primarily about martyrs but one of the things i was wondering is this idea of like care for the dead. Now, I don't know a whole lot about the Day of the Dead. I did some Google mm-hmm. searches. I've watched the movie, obviously, numerous times. But I know it's about taking, it's about emphasizing this care for the for the people who have passed in our lives. And so I was wondering if there was any ties between all of this talk about cult and care for the dead and the Day of the Dead, if there's any ties like within Christianity about these things, if there's somewhere maybe in the history of Christianity where there's a similar type of uh, celebration of saints or death of beloved family or community members? Like, is there any kind of overlap there at all? Are these two different things? Because the whole time I was reading your book, that's the movie I was thinking of. And those are the images I had in my head. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Um, Well, there's, there's a lot there, a lot to unpack. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I, I like that movie quite a lot too, that, that movie. And for those who, who haven't seen it, right, there's this idea that there's this realm, mm-hmm. there's, that there's the land of the living and that there's the land of the dead and that there's uh, an actual bridge that can be crossed, mm-hmm. you know, one time of the year on the day of the dead uh, between these two realms of the living and the dead. Um, and part of the other thing of the story, you mentioned, you know, the altar uh, mm-hmm. for your dad and that, you know, you had a photograph of him there and that that's, Kind of one of the main things of that of that movie right mm-hmm. that if the people who are still alive if your family members those who loved you your friends aren't putting up your picture on the altar to remember you uh annually that in this land of the dead you slowly fade away you know mm-hmm. kind of like the like marty mcfly that photo of him <laughs> in, in back to back to the future right, yeah. That, right? Yep. yeah like like you've never <laughs> been there um, I mean, I think that that's just, you know, that's beautiful, right? That mm-hmm. sort of com- compels, uh, you know, you as somebody and your your daughter as someone remembering your father 
you know, to do this, to keep his memory alive. Um, actually, actually um, have you ever read the book um, Sum by, by David Eagleman? Does that ring a bell? No. You know that book? No. Yeah. So he's, so Eagleman is, he's a writer and he's a neuroscientist. And, and that book is this collection of what he calls 40 tales from the afterlives. Hmm. They're very short stories. Most of them are, you know, one or two pages um, that are fictional speculations on, you know, what the afterlife afterlife might be like hmm. and and one of them starts out with uh the narrator telling you that every human every single one of us dies three deaths uh the first one is the obvious one when the body stops mm-hmm. functioning um the second one is your funeral the sort of communal or ritual one when your body is consigned to the grave mm-hmm. and the third one and and this to me is just haunting um the third one is that unknowable moment in the future when your name is spoken for the last time, mm. right? When you have been forgotten by mm. everybody. It gave me chills. Yeah. I know. Is yeah. it? I mean, it's, it's so it's creepy. scary, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's creepy. Um, but that's kind of the, you know, what's going on with Coco here, right? Yep. With uh, yep. this altar and the, the photographs and that you will fade away into some other uh, realm. Um, but e- Eagleman's story is, 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 I think, really instructive here for even thinking about Christian cult of the dead and Christian care for the saints. Um, let me just play out his his uh, his fictional speculation here for a second. Um, so he says that you know those who have ended up in the 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 realm of the dead are in this huge lobby, like you know the biggest airport waiting lounge you've ever seen, mm-hmm. um, with all the people whose names are still being spoken, and that when it's your turn to sort of pass through to some other unknown when nobody else is saying your name on earth anymore. There's a, a public address announcement and you pass through a door and who knows where you go. Um, he says, so everybody's just kind of waiting in this lobby for their, their third death. And some people don't want to go when their name is called, but others, you know, namely people whose names are in the history of history books and have been there forever mm-hmm. are kind of ready to go. <laughs> get me um, out of here. <laughs> get me out of here. Exactly. Right. Um, but then he tells, he talks about the, you know, those who have been completely divorced from their names. And the Mm -hmm. example that he gives is some otherwise anonymous farmer who has, you know, this unfortunate accident a couple hundred years ago and he drowns in a river. Well, but then later a college was built right along the river. And so each time the undergraduate who's giving the tour guide to the prospective students passes by that river, they tell the story of this farmer who died. And, you know, every single year the story gets embellished a little bit and drifts farther and farther from reality. So here this guy is in the waiting room, his name gets invoked every time any prospective student needs a tour and yet it has nothing to do with him or his life right and the point the reason why i bring that up and why i absolutely love that story uh by eagleman by the way if anybody listening to this is going to buy one book today, it should be David Eagleman's. Yeah, I just wrote books. it down because I'm going to go get that as soon as we're done. <laughs> yeah. If you buy two, buy mine. But if you're right, buying you one, buy, buy Eagleman's. Right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, but the reason why I bring it up is um, my colleague out at Berkeley, Daniel Boyarin, has this wonderfully pithy line. He says, being killed is an event. Martyrdom is a literary form, a genre, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And we have to keep those two things separate and in mind that, um, yes, there is the event of a death, but then the story about it, how that develops, mm-hmm. um, that, that that kind of escapes, right? Because the uh, what Eagleman sort of closes with in his story is that that's the curse of this waiting room, mm-hmm. is that since we can only live, we the dead can only live in the heads of those who remember us, we lose control of our lives and we become who they want us to be, who those mm-hmm. who are still telling the story about us want us to be. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I, I haven't really answered your question. That one parenthetical aside in typical fashion leads to another. <laughs> um, but you asked specifically about the connection between the cult of the dead and the and the day of the dead. Um, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, so think about when it is on the calendar on November 2nd, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. It's this, this three-day festival for the Christian dead. All, Halloween, a lot of people may have forgotten this or never knew this it's you know just a contraction for all hallows evening the evening the night before all saints day on on november 1st right and november 2nd being the the feast of all souls or the day Mm -hmm. of the dead um intriguing historical uh explanation about this um the uh that all saints wasn't always on november 1st um it was moved there officially uh by pope gregory the fourth uh i think the fourth yeah in the ninth century, mm-hmm. um, uh, but previously it wasn't for all the saints, right? We think of Saint Francis, we think mm-hmm. of all these other other saints uh, uh, who may not have died as martyrs. But initially, the term saint was coextensive with uh, the term martyr. That's who you were referring to. We know this um, that that's what it really meant uh, early on from some of the earliest calendars mm-hmm. of the saints that we have, which were basically just lists of names back to that names again right Mm -hmm. list of names of the dead and the day that they died right and you would tell your the story of that person on Mm -hmm. that day um and we have like actually actually the oldest dated book in the world and what i mean by oldest dated book is the oldest book that actually has the scribe saying Mm -hmm. when he wrote this book Mm -hmm. um dates to the month of november what correlates to the month of november he didn't use that that term for the month, but what correlates to the month of November in the year 411. Mm. And it's a Syriac manuscript that uh, you can still find. You can still read it at the, at the British Library. And at the back of the book is a list of names of the dead and the days that they died, right? Mm. And it talks about uh, the day on which each of these Christian martyrs received their crown. Right. So here's this link to uh, to Jesus, of course, who wore the crown of thorns, but also to the first martyr, Stephen um, mm-hmm. in Acts. Right. Mm-hmm. Whose whose name in Greek, Stephanos, means crown. Right. So you, you're talking about the day that all of these saints were crowned, won the paradoxical victory uh, of death or, or sorry, over death through their deaths. Mm-hmm. Right. And All Saints Day is the first Friday after Easter Sunday. That's that's when the all the saints, all these martyrs were honored. Um, all Souls Day was the Saturday between Good Friday and East, uh, Easter Sunday, when you know Jesus Himself is said to have descended to the land of the dead mm-hmm. uh, on that Saturday. So uh, it wasn't until uh, a medieval Catholic abbot in the in France in, in Cluny uh, in the 11th century put a special day for the, all these not quite saints, uh, you know, as the day after all, all saints day, right. On November 2nd, right. For, um, in, in, in this case, not such a a beautiful sort of cocoa imaginative world of, of technicolor and and animals. Um, but you're talking about purgatory, right? Mm -hmm. The reason why you've got this day is because you've got all these not quite saints whose, whose sins have to be purged and, you know, burned away before they're sufficiently disinfected to, to continue on up to uh to heaven mm. um but uh yeah that uh that i whenever i think about halloween it's hard not to, for me <laughs> given my background uh to, to think about martyrs and to think about uh the probably unpleasant 
purging of one's sins that is supposedly happening in purgatory yeah. uh, on the on the day of the dead. But uh, the the Mexican tradition, right, of of setting up marigolds and mm-hmm. and altars is is uh, if if I were going to embrace one, that's the much more beautiful one to uh, to think I about. I like that one too. <laughs> yeah, I prefer that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the the land of cocoa is a, is a land that uh would be was is very colorful and I wouldn't mind yeah. <laughs> dabbling in. So one of the things that um like all this talk about martyrs that really strikes me is that so many of them seem to have uh what's the word like this this passion for 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 death this passion for mm-hmm. following in the footsteps of Jesus to their own gruesome death like there's stories of people obviously being afraid. But, you know, more often than not, it seems like these people, whether they're afraid or they're not afraid, you know, they, they have this, I would call it a slightly twisted idea that their execution due to their refusal to denounce Jesus is somehow going to earn them like brownie points or something like that in, in mm-hmm. heaven. So uh, in the book, you tell stories, you know, of a lot of martyrs. And I was wondering if you could maybe pick one or or two that specifically to share with our listeners where it shows this person being not excited, but almost like fearless as they kind of walk towards the flames, the swords, the lions, knowing that or believing that this act is somehow going to make them a true disciple. It's going to get them the big pat on the back from God and that this martyrdom is actually like a good thing to exist in the world. Yeah, I'd love to tell a couple of stories. Um, Mm -hmm. But let's, I mean, we can back up just very briefly, right? Mm -hmm. And think about um, that where the roots of this are. Um, the, The idea of reverencing and imitating the death of Jesus mm-hmm. uh, is right there in the New Testament itself. I mean, yeah. in, you can think about how the Gospels quote Jesus as warning his disciples that they're going to be flogged and dragged before kings and governors for the sake of his name. Yeah. Uh, or I, I mentioned Stephen just a minute ago. Um, think how the Acts of the Apostles narrates his death, right? Mm-hmm. He's traditionally celebrated as the first Christian martyr. That's why his, his feast day is December 26th, right mm-hmm. after the Nativity, the beginning of the liturgical year. Uh, the place of honor there. Um, uh, you know, so he, uh, as Stephen is being stoned to death, um, there's a fascinating parallel between Jesus's death as it's narrated in Luke and that of Stephen in mm-hmm. Acts, same author. So it makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, author of Luke Acts. Um, but Stephen repeats Jesus's final words from the cross. Uh, but instead of saying, Father, receive my spirit, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Right? This is why he's called the first Christian martyr, because mm-hmm. in more or less his own words, he's dying for Christ. Okay, mm-hmm. um, So, you know, and we've got stories about all of the apostles, uh, with the exception of John. Um, all of them died violently, died, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, a martyr's death, at least according to early cr- Christian tradition, right? Mm-hmm. Simon gets sawed in half in Persia. Thomas gets speared in India. Paul is beheaded. Bartholomew is flayed. Uh, it means he's got his skin cut off if flayed isn't in your everyday vocabulary. <laughs> um, right. So, but the, the question that I sort of deal with in, in my book uh, mm-hmm. isn't so much of one of did this actually happen, but what meanings are being communicated by these stories? Why do yeah. they become such important stories for generation upon generation of Christians to tell over and over again? Um, and and you had to just to give a couple of examples of you know non non apostles who are mm-hmm. who, uh, who who do this. Um, the the one that comes to mind immediately is Ignatius of Antioch, 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's the bishop of the city in uh, what's now uh, southeastern Turkey, right on the border with Syria. Um, in the early second century, he's being dragged from Antioch to Rome, um, and he's going to be thrown to the beasts. And we have a series of letters, some of which are clearly later embellishments or elaborations or not actually written by him, but a couple of which may well be from the hand of this second century bishop. And the letter to the Romans is uh, one of the so-called jewels of the the collection. And in this letter, he talks about, uh, he's telling those who might intervene on his behalf, right, to save him. He says, you're not doing many favors by doing that. He says, mm-hmm. let me be ground in the jaws of martyrdom and the ground in the jaws of this lion so that uh, I can be ground like wheat to be baked into Christ's pure bread is his term, right? Mm-hmm. He clearly sees this as, uh, uh, as simply what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to be mm-hmm. willing to, uh, to face death. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not just him. Um, uh the, I tell a story at the, the opening chapter uh, of the book about St. Alban, probably not a saint that many people have heard of or know much about, and uh, you know, which is another kind of point of the book, is that we've got these traces of, of martyrs all over the place. Uh, uh, for example, I tell this story because I walk through, a, or used to walk through a park named for St. Alban when I was taking my kids to school every morning when they were younger. And they know the story of St. Alban, but I doubt anybody else knows the story of St. Alban. And uh, the, the real brief brushstrokes version of it is that he's not a Christian, but there's some sort of Roman Persian persecution going on, or persecution of Christians in third or maybe fourth century England. And this priest comes, you know, knocking at his door, uh, who's on the run from the Roman authorities. And Alban welcomes him in and sort of starts watching him as he's doing his prayers and then decides that he himself too wants to be a Christian. And then eventually, right, the Roman soldiers show up and Alban kind of thinking fast, he swaps his clothes for those Mm -hmm. of the priest and presents himself to the soldiers instead. And then later standing before a judge, even when, you know, sort of the gig is up and they realize that he wasn't the priest that they were looking for, he still insists that he's a Christian and that he wants to die too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's got every opportunity to save his own skin, but he doesn't want to. He realizes somehow that this is what discipleship is supposed to mean. And as he's being taken to the place of execution by the executioner, they have to cross uh, a river. And while all these people have clogged up the, uh, the bridge going across the river because they want to see this you know, lurid spectacle. And so he prays to the heavens because he's in a hurry. He's in a hurry to get to this place of execution. He can't, he can't wait for the bridge to clear. And he prays that the water will dry up so that they can cross the bridge that way. Mm-hmm. Of course, the executioner sees this happen, right? The river immediately stops flowing and he drops his sword and, and falls at Alban's feet. And the, the comical result here is that <laughs> now you got to find a backup executioner, right? right. Um, who ends up then executing both Alban and the first executioner. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my kids who will definitely be in therapy later in their lives, <laughs> um, you know, I've heard this story so many times, but their question about it never really changed. It wasn't like this miracle that was intriguing to them. It's, I think the question that, that you were asking initially is why this hurry to to rush to death and time and again in these martyrdom stories that we have from late antiquity you don't have the martyr the prospective martyr being afraid or there's not much talk of suffering um and they aren't unwilling they they go to their deaths 
in some cases, like like Albin, um, quite in a hurry, and other cases just accepting it it willingly. Mm-hmm. And it gets back to this sort of idea that you're getting in Ignatius's letter that I mentioned, that being willing to die for Christ, at least in this literature, right, mm-hmm. isn't some sort of lofty ideal, but just the basic expectation. It's funny, while I was thinking about, when I was reading these stories, and I was thinking back over my own time in the church and my own education, yeah. um, I went to a private Christian school from like the fourth through 12th grades. And I can remember like this whole idea of martyrdom is not necessarily a foreign idea even today, because I can remember having a Bible teacher who wanted us to read the book, the Jesus freak books. Have you read those? Uh, no. Or come across them. Yeah. So the Jesus freak book is basically, it's a collection of stories of martyrs and it's, oh. it's maybe 200 pages and there's, I think two or three volumes. And so I got them as a kid because I thought they were oh, this is interesting people who wanted to, you know, who, who, gave up their life because of their faith in Christ. And I remember our Bible teacher saying to us, like literally I can remember this and they gave me nightmares and talk about needing therapy was, (laughs) you know, that there are people in this life who God will call to stand up and have their life on the line for their faith in Christ. And the question will be made to those people. Do you believe in that moment you have Mm -hmm. a decision that you have to make and that this is the ultimate call of God to be, to have this happen to you and to become a martyr. And I remember going to bed at night, like literally being in like the like ninth and 10th grade horrified because is God going to call me to be one of these people? (laughs) Don't pick me. Like God, I love you so much, (laughs) but please, like I don't have the strength to be able to do this. But you know, all all this talk about, having the, you know, having the the courage and really the desire to go forward into this, it, it just brought up a lot of those memories in me because like I said, it's not necessarily a super foreign idea in some, I think, of the more fundamentalist settings that do exist within Christianity today. So this language is very prevalent in those in those worlds, I think. Yeah. Um I, I'm that's a massive oversight on my part. I need to to find this Jesus freaks. Uh, but it, it's it's from what I understand from what you just said, it's a, kind of a collection of early Christian martyr stories, but specifically for evangelicals. By yes. Means, yeah. Saying, yeah. And okay. I think it was based upon the DC talk album, I think was called Jesus freaks back in the day. And I think that they, okay. they kind of helped push this, this theme. And from, the stories were some of the early Christians. There were some like, like more modern stories as well, but it's just a whole collection of these horrifying stories <laughs> that, right. that I was uh, deathly afraid were going to happen to me. <laughs> right. I mean, where the interesting thing there is, I mean, just in terms of the, the theological idea or right. ideals um, that those stories are espousing and some of the ones that I've just related um, is the fundamental bodily bodiliness of christianity at least historically speaking right that it's not that in fact it's not just simply a matter of yes i assent to this proposition that Mm -hmm. jesus is the divine son of god and okay now i'm done right you you have to (laughs) actually do things whether that's ritual actions or be prepared for uh the the more physical action as these books were suggesting right of 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 martyrdom um but it makes sense theologically, right? If you have this notion of the incarnation, this idea that God 
really became flesh in the in the person of Jesus, took on a body, then what you do with your body, it's uh, unlike some of the so-called, you know, Gnostic uh, sects or Christians from from late antiquity, uh, who would have said, look, these people are crazy, um, uh, who, who are willing to go to martyrdom or willing to uh, willing to die as martyrs. Um, because it's about the light within you. It's about your soul. It's right. about this, some sort of disembodied ethereal realm. Um, but if you if you think you know of all the church councils that uh, from Nicaea in three twenty five all the way up to Chalcedon in four fifty one and all the ones in between, right? Every single one of those fundamental theological meetings of these bishops from around the Roman world was to hash out. How do you understand the nature of Christ? Yeah. And if, as the you know ultimate uh, theological decision is, is that he's both God and man somehow paradoxically existing uh, in one person, then that gives a, um, uh, a power and an importance to the body and to what you're doing with it, right? You can't mm -hmm. just, you know, offer this offer this incense to the emperor or offer animal sacrifice to some pagan god and say, well, I've got my fingers crossed behind my back <laughs> and it doesn't really matter, yeah. right? Um, I think that that's, so in, in an odd sort of way, uh, I, I got to find these texts, but it's it, that, you know, these, these evangelical reminders are sort of coming full circle. Maybe it's not yeah. the cult of the saints, right? Mm -hmm. But it's using those stories as pedagogically useful yeah. um, by way of conveying a certain theological idea that I've just been talking about. So you bring up an interesting point about uh, like you talked about like the Gnostics. And um, yeah. as I was reading your your book, I was reminded of a conversation I had with David Brackey on the show, mm -hmm. maybe like a year, year and a half ago. But he came on to talk about his uh, commentary on the Gospel of Judas. Now, I don't know if you've read any of it at all, but the commentary was way over my head. <laughs> he talks all about like Coptic and all different things. And I did my very best to make my way through the parts that I could understand that were, were in English. But I also went and picked up like uh, uh, Karen King and Elaine Pagel's book and uh, Bart mm -hmm. Ehrman wrote a book on Judas as well. And one of the things that we dialogued in this episode about is how there's this one point in the story, and I don't exactly remember the scene of what was going on, but the David brought out this idea that the, the gospel of Judas the writer kind of shines a light on and calls out these religious leaders who seem to encourage people to get themselves killed for their faith as if that's going to be give them some kind of some kind of a reward and i think in the in the text it's the writer almost has jesus like laughing at this idea because it's like so ridiculous and so i'm curious like given what we know about the history of christianity we know that it's wide it's diverse nobody really had the corner market on things but i'm wondering all the people who who elevated martyrdom as this great thing, what was the debate like? Like, What kind of pushback did those people receive from maybe other branches of Christianity who said that's that's ridiculous, that that's just not at all the way the way that it is? Yeah. Um, well, let me let me phrase it in a uh, perhaps unexpected way. Mm -hmm. um, I think that most of the debate probably played out less in terms of theological treatises than in stories that are getting told. Mm. And what I mean by that is that the stories that get told about particular saints are filled with theological meaning, mm -hmm. but they're framed as a narrative that a regular person can hear and understand and sympathize with because mm. it's dramatic, right? Mm. If you're um, 
you know, if you're trying to convey a particular point, you're going to convince a lot more people by telling a memorable story that has uh, a, 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 an intelligible moral or point to it mm-hmm. than you are by writing some sort of letter or, you know, ang- angry letter to the editor you know, right. or, or a theological <laughs> treatise or something right. like that, right? So, um, but you get that, uh, I think you get a moderation in a couple of these stories. So for mm-hmm. example, so for example, in the story uh, of, of, of Polycarp, there's, who was supposedly this martyr in the middle of the second century, um, there's an aside about this other guy who is very keen to be killed for Christ, but then when he has the opportunity, just kind of like what you were saying, I don't, you know, he backs off. He doesn't know about this. He's he's not going to be able to do it, right? (laughs) But then the problem is, is that you end up as an apostate, right? If you've presented yourself as like, I'm ready to go here, and then you realize you're going to be brutally murdered, have your head chopped off or whatever it is, you know, you might be a little more inclined to say, okay, give me that pinch of incense or that, uh, you know, bit of wine I need to pour out for the emperor. Um, and in so so let me uh, I mentioned you know a lot of my work is in Syriac, um, and one of the stories that I, I published uh, some years ago, an English translation of, uh, of a couple of stories about this bishop called Simeon Barsabae, Simeon the son of cloth dyers is his name. Um, so in that story about Simeon, who's this sort of heroic bishop martyr uh, in Persia in the fourth century. Um, there's an aside about this man named Gushtazad. Mm. Gushtazad was a tutor of the Persian king. He'd known the king for decades since the king uh, was young. And somehow he ends up, Gushtazad does, ends up converting to Christianity. Well, word about this gets back to the Persian king. And, you know, the king says, uh, I need you to bow down to the sun to make a physical gesture of worship to the son to prove Mm -hmm. to me that you're not a Christian. Mm -hmm. And he does it. And so Simeon, the bishop gets word of this and basically shuns him, says, you have, you have apostatized, right? You have Mm -hmm. denied Christ. And as the story continues, Gushtazad sort of comes to realize that the only way he can atone for that is washing away his sins with his own blood. Mm -hmm. And by then going back before the king and insisting, no, in fact, I am a Christian, knowing Mm -hmm. that it's going to get him killed, right? So uh, that's kind of what I mean here is that in stories like that one and others um, that are rich in theological meaning, but also deal exactly with with this sort of issue that you're talking about of, first of all, promoting martyrdom as really important, but also showing the the flip side that mm. if this does maybe you shouldn't go running and seek it out and say you know where's the where's the hangman's noose where's the executioner's sword give it to me i'm ready don't yeah. do that yeah. um but if it does come to you and you apostatize there's really not much way of getting out of this other than <laughs> coming back to the second baptism that's not in water yeah yeah. yeah i think that brings up a good point because again going back to those jesus freak books like i remember reading those and I was just assuming that all these stories that are being told happen exactly as they're being told, because that's right. also the way that I was taught to read the Bible back in that mm-hmm. day was all the stories being told, like, this is how they, this is how it happened, you know, but now I'm in this place where, like you said earlier, you know, it's not so much about the the historicity of the, of the story, 
but about the endurance of the story. Like what, like, what is it about, you know, these particular stories in Matthew or Mark or Luke or Acts or whatever that have endured the test of time to, you right. know, still make their way onto my shelf and your shelf. Like what, what is it about these stories that speak so deeply to us? But I think that's an interesting approach to bring to these stories of the martyrs as well, because it's not so much about whether or not it happened exactly like this, but the point that the writers of these stories or the tellers of these stories are trying to get across um, in, in the way that they're telling the story of these people. So I think it's interesting that you could tell these two different stories of the two different martyrs in such a way that it elevates different theological principles or different ideas, you know, that might be at odds with each other, but it all comes down to the way that the story is told. I think that's really, really interesting. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I had, um, I'm sure you've heard of Rob Bell. He was on the show uh, yesterday. I talked to him and he wrote a book called mm -hmm. Where'd You Park Your Spaceship? And it's this like science fiction book. And it's this crazy story, but buried in this crazy story are all these, these gems of ideas. And I, one of the questions I asked him was, why didn't you just write a book about these ideas? Like, why did you tell it in this particular way? And the answer that he gave was because, you know, telling the story comes at these different ideas in a, in a, in a way that surprises the reader. And I think even buries them deeper in your, in your subconscious, because now that I've read that story, like I, there's so many different, like one liners I come away with that I'm thinking deeper about that. I probably wouldn't have thought as deeply about if he would have wrote this expository book, you know, taking apart these different ideas and building up this theology or whatever, like it, it's almost like Jesus with parables, right? Like it comes at it from an entirely different way and draws you in. So yeah, I love it. truth, truth better conveyed via poetry. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, so one of the, the, the big themes in the book as well is the belief that when a martyr is put to death, that they're still able to intervene in the world, which is a mm -hmm. theme I, I love. I loved reading about this in the book, but and how people would even bring like bones and I think like pieces of clothing and things like that, like into these churches and house these things there. So I was wondering if we talk a little bit about about this, maybe again, like another story or so about a particular martyr who was seen to be continuing to intervene on behalf of a church or a community or a group of people, but then also what happened to the to those relics or the, to those bones if the saint or the the martyr was seen to stop intervening on behalf of the community because i thought that was really interesting too because it was oh, like yeah. we're gonna we're gonna elevate this person we're gonna bring in their bones but now the bones aren't doing what they were doing so now we're gonna do something different with them so take us into that <laughs> yeah well at the end there you're referring what you're referring to is uh, a relatively short-lived practice um i think it was in france maybe mm -hmm. in the 13th century before it was suppressed as you know not such a good idea where uh, relics, you know, these martyrs' bones um, would be humiliated, uh, as in put on the humus on the ground, right? Mm. Taken out of their reliquary, uh, put on the ground, left there in the cold and the dark with the candles snuffed out. Um, if they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing for those who were venerating that the, the those bones belonging to some saint, right? If the saint mm. was failing in his or her duty to care for the community uh, who were remembering and venerating them, uh, then you'd, you know, you'd do something to the relics. I mean, it sounds kind of crazy, mm -hmm. um, but if you enter into the mind of those who are doing this and ask why, um, 
they're not understood as just desiccated bones. They are portals. They are physical mm-hmm. points of intersection, as I as I said uh, before, mm-hmm. where heaven and earth converge, right? And I mean, and that's why the saints are so important. Here, their relics are on earth, and yet they're in heaven. Um, and so you have this sort of immediate intercessor, somebody who's got uh, the ear of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and patronage is understood as a two-way street. You uh, venerate this saint, but that you have this expectation that the saint is going to uh, to care for you. Um, I, I can give you another example, though. It's mm-hmm. not just uh, not just the relics, but I mentioned that. Um, but it's but it's icons too. You know, these like Eastern Orthodox uh, paintings of the mm-hmm. saints. So I mentioned I'm writing now a book about Saint Nicholas. Um, he, so he's hugely venerated in uh, what's now Russia, Ukraine. Um, and his icons are so widespread there um, that you can refer to uh, an icon as a Nicholas, even if you're not referring to mm. an icon of Nicholas. It was just, mm. you know, like we refer, we'd use the word Kleenex as a stand-in to refer to tissues, right? right use right. a brand name, right? Um, and so there's one Nicholas story. Um, a lot of them are uh, a bit anti-Semitic, some of the ones that get mm-hmm. told in the Middle Ages, but there's one about this wealthy Jewish man. This gets told in the Golden Legend, this 13th century compilation of, of lore about the saints, um, who obviously not Christian, mm-hmm. um, but he knows about Nicholas, how much of a, of a guardian Nicholas is. So he commissions uh, an icon to be painted of Nicholas and he sets up this icon at his house and says, says to the icon, says, to, says, Nicholas, watch over all of my wealth, watch over all of my riches. I'm depending upon you mm-hmm. and everything's fine for a while. But then he leaves and he comes back one day. Everything has been completely stolen and looted from his house. The only thing that's there is the icon. What does he do? He starts punching the icon. He starts kicking the icon. He starts throwing the icon on the ground, <laughs> cursing Nicholas, saying, I thought you were going to protect all of my my gold and my jewels, right? And so then, you know, Nicholas, who's, you know, somehow bilocating or whatever, um, he appears, Nicholas does, in some form to the thieves and says, mm-hmm. look, you got to give all this stuff back because I'm getting beaten up uh, back in this guy's house right now. <laughs> And the thieves say, who are you and what are you going to do? And he you know, explains that he's Nicholas, explains that, you know, that God is going to punish them if he doesn't, if they don't bring everything back. So they bring everything back. And then, of course, they convert to Christianity and the Jewish man converts to Christianity, too. Right. So kind of bizarre stories. Uh, uh, but, you know, if, even if you go into the Holy Sepulchre today, mm-hmm. you know, the church in Jerusalem uh, built over the site where. Jesus was supposedly crucified and then later buried. Um, you uh, you have people who are coming in. You mentioned cloths, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with with little handkerchiefs, with uh, you know lace handkerchiefs, and they'll pour oil on the supposed anointing stone where Jesus's body was prepared, mm-hmm. uh, and then they'll wipe it off, right? Because this is understood as. Uh, as a contact relic, it has touched something that supposedly touched Jesus. Mm-hmm. That goes back so many centuries where we have, for, so for example, in the fourth century, we have this diary, this, this basically travel log uh, of this woman named Egeria, who was a, seems like she was a nun from France or from Spain. And she talks about being in the Holy Sepulcher uh, at the time of Easter when the the actual cross was brought out and venerated. Mm. And that there's just this mass of pilgrims who were trying to touch it, who were trying to kiss it. 
Um, you have a later pilgrim story that talks about these little vials of olive oil that get touched. You know, they're in little test metal thimble mm-hmm. containers, right? That they would get touched to the cross and that the oil inside of them would start fizzing and bubbling. Like it'd come alive, right? Mm-hmm. Because so you know i've got this contact relic of a contact relic Hmm. um but the whole idea here is that 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 these physical things that are associated with a martyr or associated with jesus still have power they are not Hmm. just you know something to be put in a museum the the theological idea here um but again you know, it's not just Catholic and Orthodox superstition. Um, if you think back to, uh, to what is it, Acts 19, mm-hmm. um, the miracles that supposedly happened through Paul when handkerchiefs or aprons that he had yeah. touched are brought to the sick, right? And that here you are, you're using God or you're using this holy person as this vessel, right, of, mm-hmm. of, of God. Um, and I mean, I think that that sort of idea is, is conveyed, uh, you know, through that as well. Um, but even in the story, for example, I'll give you one uh, one last story on mm-hmm. this point. Um, Ambrose, the bishop of Milan in mm-hmm. the fourth century, um, he's got a new basilica that's being built in his city. And everybody, all of his congregation are, are badgering him to find some relics to enshrine, to install underneath the altar of mm-hmm. the church. And he, we know about this from a letter that he wrote to his sister long short long uh, long story short he finds these relics he has his priest dig up these old bones and then they're tested how do you know that these are the bones of a martyr well a blind man is brought before them and you know regains his sight a sick woman is cured mm-hmm. right immediately and as these bones are being processed into the basilica and going to be enshrined then, you know, in Milan's new basilica, Ambrose stands up and he starts preaching to his congregation. And he refers back to the story that I just told about Paul. He says, remember back in Acts, Mm -hmm. when just these handkerchiefs that touched Paul could cure the sick. He says, now you come do the same, bring up your cloths, touch them to the bones of these, uh, of these martyrs and just watch what happens, you know, to these, uh, you know, now divinely infused textiles. But I mean, I think, you know, that that's interesting too, right? The use of the Bible and the use of these past miracles to tell another story, to explain the importance of, you know, the current miracles that could happen and uh, all getting back to this, uh, uh, the fundamental bodiliness of Christianity in ancient, uh, in, in ancient and medieval periods. Yeah. Um, that is just lost on us and sounds really bizarre today. Now, is there like, um, talk about like Ambrose and how we know of this event from this letter that he wrote yeah. is, is there, is there like, like there is like, there's debate within Christianity about the Bible, you know, like the inerrancy of the Bible and, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's a historical book or whether it's, you know, this collection of stories or whatever. Is there a similar debate in the world of like that story with Ambrose? Like, is there is there a group that thinks that like this really happened, that he, you know, found these bones and that he invited these people to touch their things to the bones and that maybe miracles did happen? And there's other people who maybe say that that again like we said earlier this is a story that was told in this way to emphasize a particular point like is there that kind of debate going on within this world as well just like there is in the bible or not so much um well i mean maybe but uh, i mean i don't um 
I, I can't speculate about whether or not these uh, miraculous healings occurred, right? Sure. Um, I wasn't there. I don't. I didn't see what happened. But good um, answer. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I mean, I think. Look, let me just to to back up here uh, mm-hmm. or to broaden it out. Um, that's kind of what I wanted to avoid with this book is questions mm-hmm. of did it actually happen? Again, I'm much more interested in who is telling these stories, what meanings uh, uh, the the repetition of these stories uh, means for them and how that goes about shaping um, the culture of Christianity. But um, this is something, this question of, you know, of truth of did it actually happen um, is one that has preoccupied people for a long time. So for example, uh, there was a group of Jesuits, um, Jesuit priests in the 17th century who came to be called uh, the Bolandists after mm-hmm. their after their founder, Jean Boland. Um, and here we are, post-Reformation, early 17th century. Um, their goal is to scientifically, sort of proto-scientifically, examine the stories of the saints, which also meant mm-hmm. collecting every single one that they possibly could in whatever language that had been written. Um, to then sort of critically examine them and vet them and say, you know, what is pot, what could work here, what what might not work here, mm-hmm. and I mean, this is a group, the Bolandists, that it still exists today as this sort of hundreds of years long uh, uh, exercise in collaborative scholarship. Um, and one of the most famous Bolandists in in recent memory was a French scholar by the name of Hippolyte uh, or Hippolyte Delahaye, who died mm-hmm. in the 1940s. Um, you know, in a lot of his works, you know, he, he's, he says he, he's very careful. He says, look, I'm not attacking the saint, mm-hmm. but I am attacking literary falsehoods. Mm-hmm. And he sort of has this whole process of ranking the stories, right, which is a bit old fashioned and strange now. You know, but he says, on the one hand, we've got myths, you know, kind of like ancient Greece. We've got tales, you know, things that begin, you know, once upon a time. Mm-hmm. We've got romances and legends. And he says, these things are kind of problematic. He says, what we're looking for, if we want to try to find the truth value, is if we had trial reports from the Romans, right? If we had testimonies of eyewitnesses that we could use. Mm -hmm. But he ultimately sort of says, well, he's like, you know, we've got a couple of letters from Ignatius and maybe some stuff from Eusebius, uh, this very important church historian in in the fourth century. Um, But, you know, I I mean, it brings up a good point of like Mm -hmm. how you go about evaluating texts like this um not in bracket the stuff about the miracles but mm-hmm. just the the question of like was somebody killed for their faith as this story is uh you know is talking about um the the difficulty is, is that you you is most of the uh most of the noise that you have is one-sided mm-hmm. right you have the christian stories but you don't have sort of non-christian corroborating uh, documentary evidence. Um, it's great when you do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I can give you one quick example um, about, uh, and one actual example is um, we have the Syriac story about the siege of Nisibis, which is this Roman Mesopotamian city. The Persians lay siege to it. The bishop of the of the city, Jacob, stands up on the city walls and he calls upon God. And according to the story, all these clouds of gnats and mosquitoes fly up into the noses of the Persian horses and elephants, and they go crazy and they end up trampling their own troops, and you know, the siege is over, right? Mm. I mean, it's this, you know, lovely miracle story, but you also have a Latin. Uh, in Latin, a Roman military historian called Ammianus Marcellinus, whose name is fun to say five times fast. <laughs> so, so Ammianus Marcellinus, definitely not a Christian. He 
is writing about all of these Roman wars in, in, uh, in Roman Mesopotamia in the fourth century. And he's got this line about the Persian elephant drivers. And he says that they all have these long curved daggers bound to their right hands so that they can sever the spinal column of any beast that becomes uncontrollable. And then he says the key line, remembering what had happened in Nisibis, ah, right? So like, you know, okay, maybe, you know, bugs really did <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> make these elephants go crazy. Yeah. Um, but, but you've got two very different versions of the story of, yeah. of, of what happened. But, um, you know, just to give one, one other example, um, the, the emperor Decius uh -huh. in the middle of the third century, we don't know a whole lot about him. He was a soldier. He didn't live very long as, as emperor. Um, he, uh, he comes to power in the summer of 249 by the summer of 251, he's dead. He comes to power during a bad time in the Roman empire, the so-called imperial crisis of the mm -hmm. mid third century. Um, you've got Germanic tribes pressing in from the north. You've got Persians. You've got constant assassination of one emperor after the next. You've got rebellions. You've got a devaluation of the coinage. You've got other economic problems. You've got plague. You've got crops failing. Everything is bad. Mm -hmm. What does he do? He puts out an edict that everybody has to offer sacrifice to the gods. Mm. The world is falling apart. We need, back to this whole idea of reciprocal responsibilities, right? We need to do what's important on our end mm -hmm. in terms of offering sacrifice so that the gods will come and help us out here because the world is, is going mm. to hell. Um, well, the Christian understanding of that is that this is anti-Christian legislation. Right. Mm. And we have we have stories where, you know, you hear from Cyprian of Carthage, Dionysius of Alexandria and some, you know, some other sort of martyrdom stories that understand this as a very specifically anti-Christian measure. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. We've also have the great uh, 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 discovery um, some decades ago of in a, a, an Egyptian trash pile of basically what were receipts verifying that certain people had made sacrifice uh, hmm. along the lines of this edict that, that the emperor uh, had, had put out. The intriguing thing, though, is that, that in one of them, or in a couple of them, it says something to the effect of like, I, uh, such and such, a priestess of the goddess, blah, 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 somebody who's definitely not Christian, right? Mm. So verifying that this person is also having to make uh, make sacrifice by way of saving the empire, it's not a specifically anti-Christian measure. It was an empire-wide uh, mm. sort of thing. But you're going to hear one version of the story and one sort of understanding of history, just as the story from Nisibis with Jacob and the bugs, um, as as you do here with this edict to sacrifice. So um, it's... It, it's fun when you have these sort of competing voices mm -hmm. such that you can begin to paint a bit of a richer picture of what was actually going on. Um, but in the martyrdom tales themselves, as Delahaye, I think, sort of correctly understood, um, they they sail off into to, to legend and sort of epic stories uh, pretty quickly and trying to piece out like which element, like where is the kernel of historicity here? Like what's mm -hmm. true and what's not? Um I think people have largely kind of given up on as, as a bit of an impossible task. Yeah. Well, yeah. wow. Well, Kyle, we are just about out of time, but this has been, this has been a blast. I have learned so much from you and from your book and uh, thank you for making time for us and for our listeners and for this perspective that you're bringing back to the Christian faith. Thank you. My pleasure. And uh, real quick, is there any place online you want to point people to, to interact with you or your work or where they can find more of you? <laughs> 
Uh, sh sure, I sort of cornered the market on Kyle Smith TO, as in Kyle Smith, Toronto, Ontario. So that's kylesmithto.com and Kyle Smith TO on, on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. Awesome. I'll put the links in the show notes and maybe we can do this again when the St. Nick book comes out. All right, that would be fabulous. Awesome. Thanks, Glenn. Yeah. Chillin' chillin' in paradise Sunny day, sunny day, sunny days No clouds